Hello, and welcome to Vitals, where we explore the most pressing topics in healthcare and data. Today, we're getting a pulse on how payers and providers can collaborate to increase patient engagement, and even more importantly, how together we can partner to foster collaboration between providers and their patients on important health decisions. Joining us are Nina Zeltzer, Senior Manager at Arcadia, Tim Carey, Project Manager in the Performance Network at Beth Israel Leahy Health, and Laura Carr, Director of Provider Performance at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Together, they're going to cover how providers and payers can come together to implement programs that improve patient outcomes, how text messaging can improve patient engagement with cancer screenings, and how top healthcare organizations are using shared decision-making to increase patient engagement. All right, let's get this conversation started. Nina, over to you. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. And thank you all for joining us. Today, we're covering a really important topic, shared decision-making. A little over a year ago, Blue Cross Blue Shield Massachusetts and Beth Israel Leahy Health came to Arcadia with the idea that doctors and patients should have equal weight in deciding on health-related procedures. They were collaborating on a new shared decision measure as a way to evaluate whether doctors and their patients were collaborating on a decision related to the patient's health. The pilot shared decision was around the type of colon cancer screening would be the best fit for the patient. As part of this measure, Beth Israel Leahy Health needed a way to provide decision aid information on the multiple screening options available to the most impactable patients. We identified these patients in the Arcadia platform and ultimately sent the decision aid to them via an embedded link in a text message. Tim, Laura, welcome. Uh, can you please take me, uh, tell me a little bit about yourselves and why this concept of shared decision-making is so important. Great, um, so I'm Laura Carr. I'm the Director of Provider Performance um, at Blue Cross Blue Shield, Massachusetts. Uh, I lead a team of uh, clinical managers who work directly with our uh, providers and their value-based contracts. And my team is primarily responsible for um, ensuring that our provider organizations are providing high quality of care. Uh, we first became interested in shared decision-making um, as a way to collaborate with our provider partners, as a way to improve patient engagement and improve performance on quality measures. There's a lot of research out there that supports the idea that if a patient is engaged in their care, they're more likely to fall through on uh, preventative cancer screenings um, and improve um, their own self-management of their care. Uh, and so um, we started uh, with um, uh, our provider partner, BILH, um, because we have a close working relationship of, of many years and have worked um, closely together on other quality initiatives. And so we um, began our journey on um, collaborating on shared decision making focused on the colorectal cancer screening. Hi, everyone. I'm Tim Carey. I'm the project manager over at Beth Israel Leahy Health's Performance Network. And, um, you know, when, when Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, came to us with this idea of, you know, kind of partnering up and doing a project on shared decision making, we were extremely excited. Uh, one, you know, we, we saw this as a win-win for both the patient and the providers uh, to really have that kind of two-way conversation uh, on, on what's best for what the patient prefers for, for their, you know, screening. Should they 
decide to get screened. And I think um, colorectal cancer screening made, made sense to us because there are different options um, to get screened. Um, so we saw that as, as a good tool to help us build and collaborate with a lot of different um, you know, providers in, in our patient family advisory committee to, to help us with this project. So um, we were excited when Blue Cross came to us and it's, it's been a journey, like Laura said, this has been quite a journey. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys very much for being here and uh, continuing on to, to promote engagement with shared decision-making, you use text messaging outreach. Uh, total uh, was sent over 17,000 text messages to patients who are eligible for a colon cancer screening and delivering nearly 13,000 successful messages in three different languages. Um, Tim, what kinds of messages did we send? Yeah, so um, to take this back, so like when we built our, our shared decision-making uh, decision aid tool, um, you know, we, we, we kind of um, collaborated with a lot of different people from our medical and, and um, research, academic research teams, our, our primary care physicians, the specialists, our uh, patient family advisory committee, uh, we all kind of came together to help build like one really simple and easy to digest decision aid. And over time, as we started bringing in even like collaborating with our health equity teams and saying, we, we built this in English, but now we need it in, in Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, Creole. Um, you know, we have it in English and then uh, six other languages to better help our patient population be able to see and read the decision aid in their own preferred language. Uh, with Arcadia, we're able to push out the decision aid in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. And in future state, we're hoping to push that out in, in other languages. Um, but we, we've been pushing this out, I think, total, it's definitely over 17,000. I think it's closer to like 20,000 patients that we've sent this out to. and. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a great success with that. And I, I think on the screen here, you can see the 10% increase in the screening completion. So um, we've, we've been able to you know, really capture a, a patients that have not had a, a screening that should have, we're able to get them screened and, and help them, you know, with, with the proper screening and prevent them from, you know, either getting cancer or, or complications from cancer if it gets too late in the stage. Yeah, as Tim um, mentioned, you know, shared decision making is a multi-step process. You know, overall, shared decision making is is a communication approach to better educating patients so they can make informed decisions um, in collaboration with their provider. Um, and so, shared decision making. There's the tool that Tim talked about, which you know is an evidence-based tool. There's many available online for for groups that are just starting out um, looking for. Um, tools to use. There's ones that you can purchase through your EMR or you can make your own, such as um, BILH did, where they customized it based on their um, provider's preferences. But it really provides, uh, you know, it's an education tool that um, provides the pros and cons of each type of screening or the pros and cons of having screening or not having screening. As Tim mentioned, colon rectal cancer screening has multiple options. Um, so you can have a colonoscopy, which, um, you know, requires a lot of prep but uh, you only have to get a cancer, uh, cancer screening, you know, every several years. 
versus um, a fit test, which is a test that you use at home that's less invasive, but you have to do it yearly. And so the shared decision-making tool, you know, is a, is a, a PDF document, it's a printed handout that's given to the patient that provides them all of this evidence-based information that they would then review with their clinician and together make the decision that's best for the patient. As Tim mentioned, um, there's a lot of opportunity to improve patient engagement, the patient experience, but also improve health equity. Um, there is research that shows uh, patient engagement and shared decision-making tools do decrease uh, discrepancies um, in care and that you can improve uh, the health equity of these quality measures by using shared decision-making, by engaging the patient and making a choice that's right for them. And so um, Tim's process involves a, a text message ahead of the um, appointment that a patient's going to have with their provider that points the patient to look at this educational tool so they can review it prior to the appointment, they can digest some of that information, and then when they're in the visit with their provider, they're able to have that collaborative conversation talking about the guide that they were sent ahead of time to say, um, you know, which of these choices for cancer screening you know, makes the most sense to you? Which one would you like to pursue? And there is a lot of research out there that shows when you use this shared decision-making process that patients are much more likely to follow through on that cancer screening and to, to close that quality gap. Uh, with that, Laura, like just to add one part to that is, um, you know, the shared decision making, you know, yes, evidence based and, and research shows that, you know, the, these uh, shared decision decision aids work. Um, we've even come, you know, continuously meeting with the, the providers uh, that are, are having these discussions with the, the patients. We've been even finding that, like, they have these great conversations and they order the test. And then, you know, the patient goes home with, say, like a fit DNA. Um, and then it gets put on their like bathroom, you know, shelf. And then, you know, like weeks later, it's still sitting there and they, they didn't complete it. So then like a couple months later, um, you know, they have a follow-up appointment with their primary care physician and they're like, hey, the test hasn't been done yet. So it, it's not like you send a decision aid and magically it, like everyone's getting screened. Sometimes it takes a few, you know, conversations to get the patient to complete the test. I don't remember if you said this or if I heard this from someone else, but the, the best test is the test that gets done. And so, you know, everyone always thought like colonoscopy is the only, only screening option there is available, but it's, it's not true. There's other options available. And um, I, I do like that saying that the best test is the test that gets done um, because it's true. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because, you know, the whole point of the cancer screening is to detect cancers early to improve patient outcomes. You know, that, that's really mm -hmm. the goal. And if, 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 you know, the colonoscopy is what the provider prefers to order or is most accustomed to ordering, but that's not what the patient's going to follow through on, then you're then they're not going to complete that screening. They're not going to find that cancer early. Um, and so, again, uh, you know, finding the test that fits best for them so that way they can have that 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 screening completed is really, you know, the aim of all of this work. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think a perfect segue to, do we have any uh, kind of preliminary results of this program? We've been running it. Uh, I know you guys have been running it for, I think, uh, almost uh, a little over a year at this point. So if there yeah. are any uh, kind of preliminary results to talk through. Yeah, I think um, something that we, what we did, so, 
prior to kicking off the 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 project, we actually sent um, a, a pa we created a patient survey that had you know a, a list of questions. Uh, one of them being you know like if you've been screened for for colorectal cancer screening in the past two years, one did your provider have a, a conversation with you if you wanted to be um, screened or not, and two did, was there any like decision like you know, um, you know, did they offer any uh, examples of like, there's three or four or five different examples or, or tests that you can, or screenings that you can have versus just, oh, I went into the office and my doctor said, um, due for colorectal cancer screening and said, I need a colonoscopy. And that's exactly what we saw on the baseline is that mm -hmm. like 92 to 93% of, of the patients said that the their provider just said that, Yep, you're due for colorectal cancer screening. Go get a colonoscopy, and and that was it. That was the conversation. And now that we've embedded the the project and and you know kind of educated a lot of the providers of having that shared decision making uh, uh, with the patient, now we're seeing the the data. We've resurveyed a, a large group of patients since the um, the project has has gone on. Like we said, like for over a year now. And we're seeing that shift that now the patients are saying, yes, doctors, uh, you know, the provider that I'm meeting with is having that conversation with me, is including my input and in, in asking if, if, um, if I want, if I want to get screened and two, if I say yes to that, what are the options and laying out those options, sharing and, you know, going over that decision aid that we created. And then ultimately what we've seen a big change in is Prior to the, the campaign, only about less than 5%, around 5% were getting a fit DNA screening. So a vast, vast, vast majority were getting a colonoscopy. Since we've had the, the, um, the project in place and we resurveyed the patients, that 5% getting a fit DNA, you know, getting screened at home is now up to like 20%. So we're seeing, and we're seeing the col you know, colonoscopies are, are coming down and people are now choosing like, oh, I don't have to take a day off. I don't have to do all that prep. I can get a test at home that may be more convenient for me, or maybe I'm in a position where from an equity point of view, I can't take a day off from work. I can't afford that, or I can't get transportation. I have no transportation to get a colonoscopy. So the home option is best for them. Um, and we're seeing that you know, now that the providers are laying out different options, patients are choosing things that are not always just a colonoscopy, which is fascinating to see it in, in you know, in this project. Yeah, you raise a, a good point about having to take time off work and, and, and the burden of the colonoscopy. That's something that we had heard uh, uh, you know, when we had surveyed patients um, and, you know, is described in the literature as well, is that, um, you know, the unique thing about uh, colorectal cancer screenings and, and the options that patients have is there's a very big difference in burden on the patient to actually get the screening done, you know, versus a fit test versus a colonoscopy and being able to engage a patient in what, what works best for them, you know, again, will help to have them actually complete the screening, um, you know, and uh, really take their values and needs in, in, um, into the decision. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, on the, the patient side and also on the provider side, so we have under, you know, based on costs. So under fee-for-service models, providers want patients coming through the office door 
but this shared decision-making program changes the goal. It's focused on getting patients the care they need wherever they can get it, whether it is at home with the fit DNA and not physically having to come into the office for a colonoscopy or you know doing the whole prep for it. Um, is there any feedback on maybe how providers responded to the idea of this program? Did they support it? Yeah, so I can speak on that. So, you know, we, I was in many, many, many meetings with, you know, the, the primary care physicians, the specialists. And honestly, um, you know, you, you would think that in a decision aid where you're taking volume away from colonoscopies, uh, that you'd have specialists, you know, saying like, hey, this isn't, you know, this isn't right. But it was the opposite. They were extremely grateful because one, you have a, don't forget, we also had a, a very large pandemic that occurred that basically the world shut down. And there was a, a period of time that cancer screenings in on all probably were not happening whatsoever. So there's a huge gap of time that people were not getting um, colonoscopies that were due for one. And then, you know, over time, people started, um, you know, healthcare started opening up a little bit more and people started getting screenings, which then flooded people wanting to get a colonoscopy. And that created uh, a, a time where now we have, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, depending on the location uh, of backlog. Uh, and, and so the, the you know, the, the specialists doing the colonoscopies are like, you know, this is, this is gonna decrease their pressure uh, of getting the patients screened and saying, yeah, fit DNAs, these are good, this works. Because one, you know, like, yes, we can do colonoscopies, but the, the volume is until we can catch up to that. And, and, and so they, they were grateful for that because it, it, released a, it released a lot of pressure on their end. And it's the right yeah, thing to do. So, I mean, it's a win-win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we, we've heard um, also from um, our primary care providers in particular that they were frustrated, um, you know, with the, the large percentage of patients who were not getting screenings, you know, cancer screenings. You know, shared decision-making can be used for, for many um, health decisions. You know, most cancer screenings have a shared decision-making tool. But colorectal cancer screening in particular, um, you know, they would hear and we would, you know, hear reports of, you know, many patients pushing back of saying, you know, I don't want the colonoscopy. I've heard how horrible the prep is. You know, I don't want to do it. And they they figured the only alternative was not getting screened. And so the nice thing about the, the shared decision-making tool is it, it shows all of the options. And so a patient can come forth and say, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable doing a colonoscopy. I, I don't want to do the prep. Um, and the option doesn't have to be then just avoiding the cancer screening. It can be using an alternative cancer screening to still um, again, make sure that we're uh, keeping patient outcomes in mind, that we're able to identify early cancers, but using a screening tool that a, a patient feels more comfortable with. And so, um, you know, that's something that I think has been a, a great success and a lot of positive feedback that we've heard from, you know, primary care providers uh, that have been using these tools with some regularity is the fact that it gives an alternative to patients that otherwise would have gone without screenings at all. Yeah. And, and to add to that, you know, when we, we first started this, we, we piloted, piloted with uh, a small group of primary care physicians. And, um, you know, what some of the concern at the very beginning was, you know, is this gonna add more time to the, the patient, uh, um, you know, conversation to the, to the appointment 
that's then going to uh, mess up their schedule and, and then have them delayed um, for further uh, patients. And it is, they were, you know, there's a rightful concern. And what we found is that this conversation, it's, it's a few minutes. It's not like they're having a, a three hour conversation with them. And um, it's really helping out that the providers that had, you know, some concern at the beginning said, you know, my concern was real. I, I felt that. But afterwards, when we had the actual conversation with the patient, I felt much better because now I know like we're, we have a, a real plan that the patient wants to do and, and likely will will fulfill their, their screening, which is then going to hopefully reduce them having to have further conversations with the same patients. Um, you know, that still does happen uh, from time to time. Uh, but they're, they're seeing that that it benefits them from a time perspective too, not only just from a quality perspective of getting the patient screened, but it's helping the flow of, of their appointment and helping them with that conversation because they have the right information right there in front of them. It, it just, it makes it easier for the providers as well. Right, that's great. Uh, we touched on this a little bit, but you can go into a little more, more detailed about, you know, building out this program. So programs like these definitely do not appear overnight. There is a lot of thought and work that goes into standing up a successful campaign such as this. Uh, and let's explore kind of the how and some of the challenges in, in this process. So our first part is how did you identify the, the right patients to participate and, and sort of be reached out to in this program? Yeah. So we originally, you know, we were looking at patients that were age 50 to 75 that in Arcadia was showing as not being compliant with uh, getting colorectal cancer screening. But then, you know, as conversations kind of grew and matured, you know, a lot of the providers said, well, you know, the recommendation moved from age 50 to 45. So why don't we add patients that are coming in for their PCP appointment or the provider appointment at the PCP's office, and let's open it up to age 45 to 75. And that way we can get anyone that is in that new category of 45 to 49, we can start having those conversations now and starting to help them get screened and tested um, so that you know, as, as time moves on, and, and especially since, you know, the recommendation has shifted from age 50 to 45, we're now capturing them in this project, which is, it's helping the patients, because then, God forbid, if they ever do get screened and, and find cancer, hopefully they're finding it at a very early stage and, and helping them. Um, I think on the screen here, this, this was something really interesting. So when we were pushing out the data, uh, so, you know, you send out a text message, and then you, you can get a, um, a response back, like if you send it to a landline, you get an error message that, that the text message like failed. And, um, or you could have a cell phone that just doesn't accept text messages. You know, some mobile phones, have, you know, are very, very basic. But what we found here, and it, and it shows it here, that when we, when we pushed out the, the text message to, you know, age, it, it says here 40 to 49, but it's realistically, it's 45 to 49. And then the age 50 to 59, they were a higher percent uh, were going and actually re received by the cell phone versus when we got into like the 60 to 69 and 70 to 75 year olds, uh, it was like a flip of a coin that it, it you know, so we, we now we're looking at this data and saying, hey, our strategy for, you know, 
the 45 year olds and, and 55 year olds, this works great. Uh, it's what do we do about those with the landline that they never got the text message. So they, they had no idea until they got to the PCP appointment. And then, you know, we go over it with them at the PCP appointment. But it, the best thing is for them to review this a few days prior to their appointment. So they have some time to digest the information. And so they're coming into the appointment prepared and have, you know, questions that they might have thought of prior to the appointment. Uh, but we're using this. This is great data that we're using to, um, to help us, you know, help the patients. Yeah, and I think I'd want to add, I think, um, you know, BILH has done, you know, really an exceptional job in, in implementing this program. Um, you know, uh, as we mentioned earlier, they, you know, created their own decision-making tool to really customize it, um, you know, uh, you know, based on provider input, which I think really helped uh, to engage their, you know, provider community to, to use the tool because everyone was able to weigh in on the tool that was designed. Um, you know, they provided education to their providers on what the tool was, what the benefit of the tool was, um, you know, why it's important to use this tool. And then they, you know, uh, you know, as some of the data that, um, you know, Tim is able to share here is they tracked the impact of using the tool. And I think that that really um, is such a success and such a key part of uh, establishing, you know, a shared decision-making process um, at a provider organization is because of the fact that providing that information back to the providers that shows, you know, there's almost a, a fourfold increase in, in, in test completion when you're using this tool um, is really impactful. You know, everyone um, in a value-based contract has their quality measures and, and you know, you, you're at 80% and you're trying to get to the 85% of, you know, patients completing these cancer screenings, for instance, but being able to see, you know, data with your own patient population that using this collaborative decision-making, you know, tool with your, your patients, you know, had a huge impact um, and, you know, led to many more successful completions of, of the cancer screenings. And over time, you know, we'll able to eventually, um, you know, show that more cancers were found, uh, cancers were found early and that patients' lives were saved by using this tool as opposed to just, uh, you know, status quo, you know, as Tim described of, you need your, your colonoscopy, it's, it's time, you know, you're, you're, you're now 50, you're 45, you know, it, it's time for this. And so having this more collaborative decision-making, you know, with patients and with providers um, leads to better care. Yeah, and I'll just add, just because we're, we're, you know, next week is Thanksgiving, it, it made me think of this. Um, I, I've seen a, a good amount of patients that um, originally got a, a fit DNA or, or a fit test screening and then uh, a few weeks later, I then saw a colonoscopy for that patient, which, you know, I, I don't know the clinical, uh, you know, what was going on with it, but it makes you think if someone was getting one and then they got a colonoscopy after that, that means something was probably detected in the first testing. And so hopefully uh, those patients that, that did get that, you know, that something possibly was found on that first test and then got a colonoscopy, hopefully whatever was found was removed and now they're able to sit at the dinner the dinner table over at Thanksgiving with their family in, instead of, you know, cancer growing and, and something horrible happening. Um, so we can't, you know, can't say like how many lives we've saved, but you have to think that there's there's definitely some lives throughout this this project that someone's at the dinner table on Thanksgiving be, because of, um, you know, getting screened properly for their, their colorectal cancer screening. Which makes you feel good when you're doing this type of project. You're seeing like, you know, you're like behind the scenes, but like, hey, 
someone actually really benefited from this uh, in a positive way. It's just remarkable. It makes, you know, it makes you know, your hair stick up because it makes you feel like, hey, the work that you're doing is actually making an impact on the people in your community. Oh, yeah. I definitely got chills as you were saying that perspective. Like, what a very unique perspective and kind of the, the more reality of how this program is playing out in the real world. And uh, with that, I mean, how will the successes of this program, uh, any plans to expand at BILH with uh, BCBS Massachusetts? Yeah, so, you know, this is something I've had a conversation with my boss uh, about. And, um, you know, this project has shown a lot of success. We can learn a lot and, and grow and adapt uh, from this. But something that, like, our future project, maybe, like, you know, cancer screening, other cancer screenings are a little hotter because there's not a lot of options like there are with colonoscopy, like with, um, you know, colonoscopy versus fit DNA and fit. But maybe something like working with diabetes patients and looking at like, you know, the options of do you want to, um, you know, change your eating style or exercise style or do you want to get your finger pricked for blood or not or other, do you want to be on certain medications or not and like look at different ways that you could maybe manage the diabetes population in a different way using shared decision making that might be uh, a next project that um I'll, I'll nudge lara on with blue cross like maybe they want to partner with us on that or or you know have a discussion about it at least yeah you know, we're definitely um you know as an organization um uh, you know are very supportive of, of shared decision making and, and are looking to um, expand its use throughout our our um, provider organization community there are many um other options for shared decision making that are like well-established tools you know cancer screening being um another one as tim you know um uh, made the point about is that colorectal cancer screening is nice because there, there's multiple options that you're picking between. But some of the other commonly used shared decision making tools, for instance, are um, for like PSA testing. And the 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 decision tool is is whether to actually have the testing or not. Um, you know, uh, breast cancer screening. Um, you know, the 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 decision making tool helps um, a patient decide if if it's okay to do the, the screening now, or if they delay the screening, are they increasing their risk and, and how they kind of weigh those pros and cons. Um, but again, it's, it's a way to improve patient engagement, um, to, to pull patients into um, decisions about their care, which we've found um, you know, patients really prefer. Uh, it, it, it builds a, a trusting relationship with their provider. It improves their overall experience with uh, the healthcare system. Um, and so we are um, always looking for new ways uh, to um, expand shared decision-making as a way to improve patient engagement. And circling back a, a little bit to, uh, I believe as Tim had commented on sort of COVID shutting down all this cancer screenings that were occurring, but you know, in this particular case, providers and patients are deciding on an at-home versus an in-office treatment. Uh, this isn't necessarily a new concept, but COVID really transformed how comfortable patients are with taking tests in the home and maybe bringing, you know, accessibility and equity and bringing the care into the home as opposed to physically having to go into an office for every single time. Um, do you think this trend, I think, maybe iterated on a little bit, but do you think this trend will continue with other procedures. Laura, do yeah, you want to take that or do you want me to take that? Sure, I'm happy to go first. 
Okay. You know, I think um, uh, the results of the pandemic have, have really changed care. Uh, you know, the amount of uh, telehealth that's used, the amount of, you know, um, at home um, uh, services that are provided, in-home testing that's provided. Um, you know, we, we've had a lot of discussions as a payer on, you know, site of care. And, and you know, um, another example is, uh, you know, we've had a lot of uh, infusion, medication infusions that used to happen, you know, at a hospital now happens in a patient's home. So I think um, things that, you uh, you know, before used to only happen every once in a while, now are happening all the time as a result of the pandemic um, and the impact that it had on access um, to uh, the healthcare system. And so I think that this is a trend that, that will continue. Um, if you look at the number of uh, new healthcare <laughs> vendors that are available that, you know, provide app-based treatments or, uh, you know, providers, uh, you know, interfacing with you in a virtual world, um, I do think that this is a, a trend that will continue. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that this is the start of, um, you know, the colonoscopy testing, you know, expanding the amount of like fit testing and at home um, uh, testing that occurs for these types of cancer screenings as opposed to colonoscopy, I think is a shift that will continue to grow um, over time. I agree with that, especially when you think of like, you know, different, you know, rural areas versus suburban areas and um, urban areas. Some places, like, imagine if you live somewhere and it took you, like, 30 minutes or, or more just to get to, like, a, a doctor's office uh, for a colonoscopy versus I could be at home, not have to travel that far, and, and get a test and screen at my own home and just mail it back in. That, that might, you know, really be attractive to a lot of people that, you know, just live in an area that just they'd have to drive a, a really far distance just to get to a medical facility so i definitely think it's here to stay i mean yeah. yeah well and i was gonna say even you know the outreach that um you know you've done um tim at your organization with using you know text-based outreach is something that you know a couple years ago <laughs> you know was not widely used and and many organizations are looking for a way to to get to where patients are and to to use tools that they're you know familiar and accustomed with and so i think getting more and more in the virtual and at-home world is um you know going to continue you know as those 40 you know, five-year-olds and 55-year-olds age up, you know, they're going to continue to expect it. And their children certainly will, you know, yeah. as they yeah. age into um, needing some of these screenings. Um, and so I do think that this is a trend that will grow. Yeah. And especially like with the text messages, like, you know, so I don't know if we answered this, but I'll answer it now. Like, so we're sending this text message, uh, you know, usually it's a few days or a week prior to the patient's, uh, you know, appointment with their primary care physician. So they're receiving this, in advance of going to their, their doctor's office. And it's kind of like that prep work. So we're now like giving a lot of really easy to digest information uh, to the patient. So when they go into that appointment, it's making the appointment a lot more efficient uh, for the patient and the provider. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I have one final question, and it's been a great discussion to sort of wrap up uh, the, the notion of shared decision making. But uh, in your opinions, does the concept of shared decision making have a larger role to play, uh, I mean, outside of just procedures, but just in the future of healthcare itself? Uh, I, I definitely think it, it, it does. You know, 
So your decision, if you if you break it down, think of it, it we do this everywhere. I mean, if you go into a, 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 to buy a car, the car salesman doesn't say like, oh, you're getting this red car over here and that's it. You know, like you have a choice. Like there's different vehicles, different colors, different options, like different interior, exterior. Like that's kind of like a shared decision. You're making a shared decision making. I mean, granted the car salesman's just trying to sell you a car, but <laughs> there's, there's a kind of a, a two-way conversation there. Uh, the same with medical and healthcare, like, uh, you know, at, at, you know, prior, you know, you, a lot of the times you just saw like the doctor saying, oh, you're getting a colonoscopy. Uh, now you're starting to say like, oh, well, there's one, do you want to get screened? Yes or no. And that's a patient's preference. And two, like, if you want to, you know, there are different options. I see this growing in, and you know, patients think of like palliative care in hospice. Like if, if you're at the end of your life and you just keep going back and like back and forth to a hospital and you just keep getting re-hospitalized, doctors and physicians and uh, nurses are gonna have that conversation with the family and the patient saying, what do you want, you know, your, your your time is coming close to an end. Like, how do you want to spend that time? Do you want to keep coming back to the hospital over and over and over again? Or do you want to have some comfortable settings at home and be with your family? I, those are shared decisions. Like they're having a conversation about that. So I, I definitely feel healthcare is going to be taking this and growing. It's just going to keep growing and growing and growing and get embedded deeper and deeper and deeper into healthcare. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, uh, a historical view of medicine is that, you know, it used to be very paternal, that the the physician made the decision, um, that a patient would not question the decision that, um, you know, the, the uh, physician had made on their behalf. And, um, you know, modern uh, times just, you know, won't allow for that. It really, we need to have patients engaged in their care. We need to have them making informed decisions that, that make sense for them. Um, and so it's really the provider's job to educate a patient on the options that are in front of them and then help the patient make the decision that's best for them. So I think that shared decision making is really um, going to continue to expand, you know, having patients engaged in their own, um, you know, healthcare decisions, you know, will continue to grow. Um, and PCPs, you know, primary care providers, you know, continue to be, um, you know, more of a, a, a coach <laughs> and help to guide their patients in, in their care um, and help them make informed decisions um, about, about their health care. But it it's really is that, you know, it's the patient's life, it's the patient's health. Having the patient engaged makes them more likely to, um, you know, fall through on their care. You know, there's studies that show um, engaging a patient in decisions about what medications to use make them more likely to continue to use those medications. Uh, engaging, you know, patients in decision making about, um, you know, certain procedures make them more likely to, to fall through on physical therapy after the procedure. And so getting in patients engaged is what's really going to drive improved outcomes and, and, and continue to improve patient engagement and patient experience with the healthcare system. Well, that is a great uh, summary of you know where shared decision making will will take us next in healthcare. Can I just off, also offer to the audience that if anyone is interested in you know instead of like recreating the wheel with the shared decision making, if you want to see our like what we've created because 
it took a lot. I mean, we probably went through like 20 different versions until we finally got like, okay, this is like where we want to be. Uh, so it's on our website, but um, if you either, um, I don't know if we can share the website now or later, but if even to share my email, I people can email me and um, I can kind of, you know, even if they want to set up like a Zoom or Teams meeting, I can chat with them and sh share like what that looked like and what we have so that they can just take that and kind of like run with it instead of recreating it from scratch. It's, it's, there's stuff out there that you can just, you know, use. That's an incredible offer, Tim. And what's your email address that people can reach uh, out to you? So, yeah, it's T and then Carey is my last name, C-A-R-E-Y at B-I-L-H dot org. That's an amazing offer. And we do have some resources in the related content um, panel in your window for this webinar. So you can actually go there and click through to uh, Beth Israel Leahy's website. Um, Nina, Laura, Tim, this has been an incredible discussion, so much so that we have a ton of questions from the audience. I don't know that we're going to get through all of them, but we can at least start and try. Sure. Um, the first question that we had that came in was, um, uh, let's see, was the campaign targeted to patients with upcoming PC appointments only? What happened to the patients who didn't have any plans to come in? So, yes. So to answer that, yes, we were targeting the patients that were, um, that were coming, they, they had a scheduled appointment um, because that, that's how we knew we could get the shared decision-making conversation. Um, to answer the other part, for those that didn't have a um, upcoming appointment, we actually recently with Arcadia pushed out a, a colorectal cancer screening uh, text campaign for anyone, regardless if they have an appointment or not, uh, to um, you know look for getting screened and, and contact their their you know primary care physician's office to you know start that conversation of getting screened. Um, so the, the the major part the project was really geared towards those that are coming in because that's who we knew were going to have the appointment. And the second half was the, the wave of people like, what do we do about the people that don't have an appointment and um, helping them as well? I hope that answers the question. I'm not hearing Mike. Yeah, I'm not Is hearing your volumes off. Oh, goodness. Um, I, I was going to say, this question is really for all of you, but I think I'm going to start with, actually, I'll start with Nina on this one. If a group is using Arcadia, how does that data interface with the plan? Uh, with the plan specifically? That was the question, yeah. I think it's a question just around um, data transparency between providers and plans. Yeah, um, I honestly would think that Tim and Laura might be able to answer that a little bit better. But I think more with within Arcadia as a whole, you know, we um, our you know web analytics product is to aggregate like clinical and claims information into one space so that you have a more holistic and uh, full view of patients and sort of their actions. And so we 
use that data to be able to send messages out. And then that data is within the health system who works within Arcadia. And uh, Tim, I don't know if you can communicate with, you know, such a good partnership with ECBS Massachusetts and kind of how that gets back to them. Yeah, so what we do is so like we meet with Blue Cross a few times a year and, um, you know, Laura, Laura sees the, you know, the, the, the report dashboard that I've created uh, on this project and we share that with them uh, every single time. And uh, we have it for, because this project isn't just specific to Blue Cross Blue Shield patients, it's all payers. So we have a view of all payers and then you can drill it down to like, hey, Blue Cross, here's your Blue Cross HMO and PPO patients, and this is what that patient population looks like uh, compared to you know, the big 30,000 foot view of everybody. Uh, so we, we definitely share, uh, we even, sh you know, like we talk about um, in the project, we have 429 uh, active primary care physicians that are uh, engaged in this project. Um, and this started off with, uh, we had what, seven pilot uh, providers and now we're at over 400 and that just keeps growing as we kind of, you know, more and more people get interested in this and like, oh, I, I want to be part of that. Um, and we, we've been able to grow it. So definitely went from seven to 400 and everything in between as it just, it's, you know, it's grown over the year. Yeah, and we um, have you know value-based contracts with many provider organizations throughout the state. And as part of our value-based contract, um, with provider organizations, we exchange data. So we, you know, provide them um, an extract with all of their claims data, you know, for their members at risk, and and they usually exchange with us uh, clinical data on the care that those members are receiving. And so we do have a number of our provider organizations that use Arcadia, you know, kind of to aggregate that data on site to help better inform their um, programs and processes. Uh, but you know, usually, um, you know, we're working directly with with BILH, and then BLH is, is leveraging those tools to make their um, outreaches more impactful. Fantastic. And Tim, you said that uh, the provider providers engaged in this in this project went from seven to four hundred fairly quickly. And the next question it leads right from that: uh, How did you get providers interested in the SDM process? And how do you get them invested in the conversation to even begin with? Yeah, so, um, you know, it, it started off with my my boss, who is part of this project, is also uh, an associate chief medical officer of primary care uh, provider. And so she was one of our, uh, I, you know, nominated her like, all right, Kim, you're going to be our, our, uh, our first uh, pilot provider. And then we, we opened it up to a few other uh, physician leadership that were part of this project that we collaborated with. And so they, it was really the physician leadership that became the pilot providers. We went through it, we learned like, okay, what works, what doesn't work, you know, kind of worked out some of the, the kinks in the process. And then once we did that with them for a few months, we started, they started bringing in their provider practices and saying, look, everybody, like, I just went through this. This is what it was like. This was my experience. This is how it helped me and helped the patient. And so that 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 kind of um, agreement and and education to all the other providers got them to to jump on board and say, yeah, this is this is a win win for the patient and for the provider. We want to be part of this. Yeah, I think you know BALH you know did an excellent job of um, you know really starting small and you know working through. <laughs> 
all of the, the, the complicated pieces with a very small dedicated core team. And then once they got a process that, that worked very nicely, that they were able to expand quite rapidly, as you saw. You know, they were um, lucky to have, um, you know, physician champions to really message the fact that this really does ultimately provide better care. You know, your patients will be more engaged. They're, they're more likely to follow through on recommended, um, you know, healthcare best practices, you know, which ultimately will lead to improved patient outcomes. And so it really is a win-win-win once you get those operational process pieces, um, you know, ironed out. There is also a return on investment for provider organizations and value-based contracts. As, as Tim has, you know, uh, graciously shared their data, patients are more likely to, um, to get their cancer screenings if they've been engaged in the process through shared decision-making. And so closing that gap improves their quality performance. And so for their quality performance in any of their value-based contracts, not just with Blue Cross Blue Shield, but with any of their, their payers, um, you know, closing those gaps and improving their quality performance will lead to, to better payouts in their um, value-based contracts. Yeah. Which then leads to more improvement and more opportunity to do uh, improvement. And better uh, care. Yeah, better care. Like, this is a continuous cycle. Like, you keep doing better, you, you get more money. That money gets applied towards improving other things to look at other areas to improve. It's just continuously continuous improvement. So I, I really love this next question. It's a little off topic, but uh, we had an audience member ask whose cat is meowing in the background. Sorry, that, that's <laughs> I have two cats, a brother and a sister that are about a year old, a year and a half old. And um, I don't know where she went, but uh, if I don't give her 100% attention when she's awake, she'll just meow. I'm, su I'm surprised she didn't jump on my lap or jump on my back. She's been well known to just jump from floor to my shoulders, claw marks into my neck uh, when I'm on a Zoom meeting, which usually gets a lot of people to laugh and me to cry. Amazing. She's being a little shy today. Um, I don't know where okay, she I think is. We have, the brothers, I think, no, they're, they're both sleeping. That's why they're both sleeping. I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions. Uh, here's a good one. We, we tried using text messages for patient engagement before. Our patients thought they were spam and we struggled with interactions. Do you all have any advice? Yeah, so that's, that's, a, real, that's a real concern. Um, that's legit. Um, so our text message, it's a link to our um, Beth Israel Leahy Performance Network's web, uh, web link. And so <clears throat> we, you know, not every single person that gets a text message is going to click on it. There's going to be a, a certain percentage of people that just said, nope, I don't, you know, I don't care if that's legit and it's coming from Beth Israel. It's a link and I'm not, I'm not going to click on it. Um, and I, I think... We, that's that's reality i mean um we can try to ha have the the best text message we even have the the provider's name in the text message so like hey if you're pcps you know tim carey and you're getting a message that's saying it's from tim carey i guess that, that could be spam as well so anyone could fool you but we try to make it as realistic as possible and then it, the, the the backup part of that is if they don't click on it, we, we want to have that kind of like paper version or at least have it up on the monitor on at the appointment so that the patient can physically see the decision aid uh, during the appointment uh, is the ultimate goal. Either a paper version or or if a if a provider just has it up like a saved saves our um our our link as one of the favorites on the on the monitor, then they can just you know click on it. And if the patient's 
a Russian speaking, they click on the Russian one. If they're Portuguese speaking, they click on the Portuguese one. Uh, so that, you know, whatever the patient's preferred language is, if we have that available, um, they can pull it up and have that conversation in, in the patient's preferred language. And I can add to that from a product perspective. Um, we definitely encourage uh, using a practice name or a health entity name that we feel patients would be most mm -hmm. comfortable with. So if you have a Beth Israelahi Health, I'd like to think it's a, a pretty well-known organization, but yeah. maybe practices that are more in uh, outside of Boston, maybe the patients recognize more of their specific primary care provider name instead of just Beth Israelahi. So we definitely encourage the you know most comfortable names we think patients would be comfortable with. Um, we also know that some shortened links like a bit.ly or tinyurl also feels a bit spammy. So Beth Israel, uh, BILH did a really good job to make the links like BILH.org. So it does feel a, a bit more legitimate uh, with the type of link that we're sending. Um, and I feel like there was a more point with that, but I think those are the the two biggest ones is the, the, the names and, uh, and that the links felt as realistic as possible. Yeah, that's really good advice. Uh, Laura, we have one more question. I think this one's for you. Do payers typically drive programs like these? How can a health system initiate the conversation to start implementing shared decision-making in their contracts? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, so we, um, you know, are, are you know, in a number of value-based contracts with our provider organizations. And, you know, a core element of those um, value-based contracts are being aligned on wanting to improve the quality of the care that our patients receive. And so we meet, um, you know, fairly regularly with our provider organizations to talk through ways um, to help them improve their quality performance. And it was through those discussions that th this opportunity, you know, um, became available um, to BILH. And so I think, you know, reaching out to um, you know, your pay uh, you know, talking about how your, you know, current quality performance is, where the gap is, and, you know, putting together a proposal of, uh, you know, further closing that gap um, through shared decision making, I think it, you know, could be one approach um, for uh, provider organizations that are, are looking to expand this work. Again, you know, we are very aligned in wanting to improve quality uh, and improve quality focused on, you know, HEDIS measures. And so, um, you know, there is evidence to show that shared decision making is one way to improve that performance. And it's something that you know is better for patients it's better for the provider organizations it's better for the payer what a great discussion thank you so much nina tim and laura for sharing your insights today we really appreciate you walking us through this program and really giving us all the details of how it's working and why it's working and thank all of you in our audience for listening in if you go to arcadia.io slash vitals, you'll be able to access the full show where we explore additional questions submitted from live viewers. You'll also find a show notes tab uh, on the recording where you can get additional resources like articles from uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield Massachusetts, Beth Israel Leahy, and more information from Arcadia as well. Uh, we really look forward to seeing you in the future on one of the live recordings of these podcasts, or there are additional podcasts available. That's all at arcadia.io slash vitals. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.